So again, good evening to this, uh, in a way, inaugural gathering to um, support our practice. And again, I want um, this evening to explore the nature of awakening, the central goal of the practice, the manifestation of the life of the Buddha. And one of the powerful dimensions of awakening is that it can be talked about very simply, not hard to understand, hard to implement. (laughs) But that's way, way better than being hard to understand and hard to implement. (laughs) Probably most commonly, the Buddha talked about awakening the way it's usually translated as going beyond greed, hatred, and delusion. And in a way, we could say that what's usually called greed and hatred, we could talk about even more simply. It's the quality of what I like to call reactivity. It's the grabbing hold habitually, automatically, unconsciously of the pleasant and pushing away habitually, automatically, unconsciously the unpleasant. Each of those in a hundred possible different ways. We grab hold of pleasant tastes. Sometimes when, although um, choosing to eat one of those wonderful cookies would not necessarily be greed. (laughs) It could be done with supreme wisdom. I won't go so much into that, but... um, but the, the quality, the, the quality of reactivity is more habitual, unconscious, automatic, could be done by grabbing hold of pleasant taste, or, uh, you know, it might be when we just totally unconsciously go for the second piece of chocolate cake. Okay. Again, it could be, on the other hand, a wise decision. Okay. We could also, we're also very aware of when we uh, grab hold of pleasant ideas, pleasant experiences, in a more, again, the, the key is habitual, automatic, unconscious, often driven by habitual patterns from the past. Again, separate from whether it's the, the key is the habitual and automatic quality because sometimes, again, we could choose to go towards the pleasant. It's not the pleasant in itself that's the problem. It's the unconscious and automatic quality. I once had a group, we were exploring this, and I mentioned that uh, the pleasant experience in itself is not a problem. We could sit here all evening 
and have cookies, and it would not necessarily be a problem. And they said, let's try it. <laughs> and so we did. You know. uh, and it's, again, we can, uh, of course, when we have, things can get tricky, but I think you get my point, that it's not necessarily the, um, the pleasant itself. So we can grab after pleasant uh, sensations, tastes, smells, experiences, uh, people, ideas, and so forth. In a similar way, we can more habitually push away the unpleasant at the level of the body when we contract around unpleasant sensations in the body that would be an example of reactivity again generally talked about sometimes uh, sort of brought together under the label of hatred but it's a little bit misleading because it's really noticing the ways that we habitually automatically push away things at the level of the body uh, you know, for example, the first medical intervention with mindfulness was in the field of people who had chronic pain. And what they found is that a number of forms of chronic pain, not all of them, but a lot of them, the level of pain is about 20% the original sensation and 80% the contraction. That would be the reactivity, you know, which again is very understandable. It's hard to be with the unpleasant, but it's the contraction. And so if they could be taught to eliminate a lot of that 80%, they still have the 20%, but it's a big difference. One, we can contract at the level of the body. We can be involved with reactivity at the level of the mind. We probably know this the best. Being judgmental, blaming, having a whole story, negative storyline about ourselves or about others, that would be reactivity, right? And that is what generally comes under this rubric of greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, the, again, greed isn't the best word to choose because it makes it sound like it's uh, something in the mind where I want this. And sometimes that's the case. But it's this more compulsive, habitual grabbing after the pleasant in all sorts of ways, level the body, the mind, and so forth. And then the pushing away, again, at the level of the body, the thoughts, the mind, the emotions. That is what the Buddha is asking us to look at, he sometimes says, I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha. The end of dukkha is the end of reactivity. And I, again, I like to translate dukkha, usually translated as suffering. The most fundamental meaning is that reactivity of grabbing hold of the pleasant unconsciously and pushing away the unpleasant. And, so, and the dimension of delusion, or sometimes talked about using the word ignorance, is not knowing this whole process, being on automatic, which we are a certain portion of the day, right? Maybe a lot of the day. How many know, you know, who would say now, I was on automatic a good part of today? 
right? right? So we can see that awakening is easy to understand and hard to implement, right? A lot of the, so a lot of the ways that delusion or ignorance is talked about <clears throat> is as the not seeing of that reactivity and the processes, not noticing when I'm judgmental, not noticing when I'm blaming of myself or others. I'm just caught up in it. We don't see that. There's a kind of ignorance. The Buddha also said that the uh, fundamental areas that we don't see clearly are three. Another way to talk about awakening is to talk about seeing clearly in these three areas. The first is seeing how things change, seeing impermanence. Again, something that most of us see as obvious, but we don't always notice it. We don't always see it clearly. So seeing how things change, seeing impermanence, seeing reactivity. And thirdly, and probably the most complex, seeing the nature of the self and going beyond the sense of an independent, separate self. That's, that's hard, right? Because we have a very strong sense of being separate and different and so forth. So having more of a sense of interdependence. I won't go so much into those three. I do in some of, in a lot of my teaching. But it's just to say this is the most basic way that the Buddha talks about awakening as the absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. The absence of that ignorance. The absence of reactivity. Right? The absence of the grabbing hold, the pushing away. And he less frequently talks about awakening as something positive. But he does at times. As I mentioned, there's the teaching of the uh, factors of awakening. The Buddha says those who fully cultivate the factors of awakening give up grasping, enjoy non-grasping or non-clinging. They have destroyed, they have destroyed that which gets in the way of awakening. They are luminous and completely liberating, liberated in this life. And so we, as I mentioned in the guided meditation, we practice in two main ways. We see that which gets in the way of awakening, you know, given in code language, greed, hatred, and delusion, or the the unconscious habitual grasping, pushing away, and then the underlying ignorance about how things change, reactivity, and ourselves. We are able to cut through those. And then on the other hand, we develop the qualities that manifest awakening. And again, the most basic model is that we develop these seven factors of awakening. And so we can see in a very simple way the process of awakening involves seeing clearly and working through what stands in the way of awakening. 
and then developing positive qualities that express awakening. The seven factors being the most fundamental model. Mindfulness, inquiry or investigation, resolve or energy or determination, especially to practice, joy and bliss, tranquility, concentration and equanimity. These are the qualities that both, when we develop them further, we strengthen our movement towards awakening. And they also, when we're awake, these, this is what manifests. These qualities are natural. When, you know, let's say when we're more awake, the mind is stable, not moving around all the time. Tranquil, balanced. We, you know, really from our practice, we've explored the range of experiences. We've explored that which makes it hard to be present. We've explored, I know for myself, you know, partly doing retreats, I've had, I've had my fear retreat. I've had my anger retreat, where I might seem not seem like a too angry a person. I had a retreat where I was angry for 10 days in a row for 16 hours a day. I had a fear retreat. I had more than one self-judgment retreat. And a lot, of, a lot of how we learn is just hanging out with these qualities until we see them clearly. We're not scared of them. We know them. A natural compassion for ourselves and others develops. Right? And, and so this is, this is a key part of our practice. We don't always put it in the advertising material at Spirit Rock. But we could say, come to Spirit Rock. Learn about fear and anger. <laughs> Learn about your top five neurotic qualities. We promise. <laughs> right? But, that, but, that's, but those of you who have been practicing for a while know this is actually the way it works, right? Anyone relate to that? Okay. Well, this is how it works. We... we um, you know, my, my personal journey was when I heard teachers talking about suffering, I thought it was for other people. It didn't take long for me <laughs> to find out that it was also about me. Um, and so, but I, my first period of time... I thought, oh, I'm here, for, I'm here for bliss. I'm here for really deep states. Yeah, yes. <laughs> right. And, uh, and there, those happened some. But then I sort of got the other side of it and had to be with the difficulties. And, you know, I learned. And it was really, really crucial. So both are there. And that's probably the primary way that the Buddha talked about awakening. But he also sometimes gave more positive accounts in addition to the teachings of the uh, factors of awakening. He sometimes talked about 
an awake mind, an awake awareness. And he talked about a kind of awareness which was, he said, signless, beyond concepts, boundless, infinite in terms of the span of awareness, and luminous. Not so many passages, but the Buddha did talk at these times about awakened awareness as beyond concepts, infinite in its spaciousness and luminous. One passage where consciousness is signless, boundless, all luminous. That's where earth, water, fire, and air find no footing. They're both long and short, small and great, fair and foul. Name and form are wholly destroyed. This is less easy to understand, right? It's a kind of awareness which has a kind of infinite spaciousness. Not so developed by the Buddha, but developed in later traditions to really point to what could be called awakened awareness, another manifestation of awakening. So, for example, in the Thai forest tradition, which is a primary uh, resource and influence on Spirit Rock. Some of you know Jack Cornfield studied with the great uh, Thai teacher, Achan Cha. I was also able to study with him some. And uh, in the Thai forest tradition, they have something very similar, really bringing out this quality of um, and a kind of awakened awareness. This is from really the founder of the Thai forest tradition in the modern world, uh, um, Actually, it's from, not, not the founder, but this is from one of the main teachers, Achan Mahabua, who says, the, this mind is originally radiant and clear, but because passing corruptions and defilements come and obscure it, it doesn't show its radiance. Oh, that actually was Achan Mun, who was like the, one of the founders of the Thai forest tradition. And so we have that sense of there being what Achan Cha called our original mind, that our practice is to take us back to a quality that we may experience at times. Sometimes we may call these mystical experiences. They may occur when we're in the wilds. How many people have had something like a, a, a great spacious awareness being in wild places. It's, it's, it's common, right? Sometimes we can experience this in uh, a deep manifestation of love with another person. How many of you have experienced something like that in, in those connections? 
and we can experience it just happening after breakfast one day by itself. <laughs> that can occur. And this is achancha. We are practicing to reach the old mind. I would translate it as awakened awareness. Again, you find it with the Buddha, not the usual way he talked about it. So I'm really giving different ways to understand awakening. The primary way in terms of greed, hatred, and delusion, looking at those qualities, looking in terms of the positive factors like the factors of awakening, but then going more deeply into something like awakened awareness. Achan Cha says, we are practicing to reach the old mind. This original mind is unconditioned. In it, there is no good and bad, long or short, black or white. The nature of the original mind is unwavering. It is tranquil. Practice really means searching to find our way back to the original state. The, he calls it the old thing. It is finding our old home, the original mind that does not waver and change following various phenomena. It is by nature perfectly peaceful and it is something that is already within us. So this is really also how the Buddha talked about awakening. He said that we don't produce awakening, we rather uncover it. It's our deep nature. And it can give us the confidence to practice when we, when we touch it more and more. It's not something that we produce by strenuous meditation, although strenuous meditation can be useful. But we uncover, we might say, our basic wisdom, our basic love and compassion, our basic ability to respond uh, skillfully and compassionately. And this is also something like this, awakened awareness is also found, especially in the Tibetan tradition. You know, some of you may know the traditions of Dzogchen and Mahamudra, which, which I've studied for um, a number of years. And you find passages which are very, very similar. One of my favorite passages comes from the 16th century, a teacher named uh, Dagpo Tashi Namgyal. He describes this awakened awareness as open like the sky, pervasive like the earth, unshakable like a mountain, shining like a flame, lucid like a crystal. It's taken to be a quality of awareness that we can touch. And actually, I, I teach this in my uh, more advanced retreats. I give five or six different ways to access this awakened awareness. And it's not so hard to access. It's a kind of non-dual spacious awareness. Not so hard to access rather hard to stabilize in meditation and harder to stabilize in daily life, right? But not hard to access. Once you access it, it can keep on growing. 
you know, and there are different ways. Again, I, I use five or six different ways in, when I teach and invite people to find the way that works best for them. And then we find ways to touch it more and more and to, to let it grow. Maybe another, let me see, another passage from the, uh, from the Tibetan tradition. Let's see. This is from the great 14th century teacher Longchenpa. The true nature of phenomena is such that there is nothing to discard or adopt, nothing that comes or goes, nothing to achieve by trying. Rather, the sun and moon of utter lucidity arise when one rests naturally in the spacious expanse that is the true nature of phenomena. This is from the Buddha, very similar. Luminous are this heart and mind, brightly shining, but they are colored by the attachments that visit them. This those who do not practice do not really understand. They don't cultivate the mind and heart. Luminous are this mind and heart, brightly shining, free of the attachments, the reactivity that visit it. This the noble follower of the way really understands. For them there is cultivation of the mind. And one one more passage from the Tibetan tradition where it said that this being our basic nature, we somehow forget that. And the awakening process is the process of remembering. Is coming back. This is from an old text called the uh, Prayer of Kuntazampo. Kuntazampo is the being of compassion and wisdom. In the beginning, delusion arises when awakened awareness is forgotten. The mind and heart become numb and dull. This is the first ignorance and the cause of every. E- every ill. Instantly unconscious, one's thoughts wander aimlessly. One is seized by hope and fear. This begets I and other, friend and enemy. And through clinging, this becomes habitual. That's the description of ordinary habitual reality, right? So, ready to sign up further? (laughs) Now, this is really the the calling of the tradition to awaken, to find that quality of awakening. And beautiful ways to practice that we can work with, whether it's developing mindfulness, exploring fear and anger and the judgmental mind. And I want to ask um, a further question. I love the teachings of awakening. I love the practices. But I want to ask, in a way, a radical contemporary question. 
Are the traditional maps of awakening sufficient for the contemporary period? Or do we need a more contemporary map of awakening which might integrate the traditional understanding of awakening with more contemporary ways of practicing? So I'm afraid I've just built up your love of awakening, you're ready to sign up. And now I ask another question, you know, and saying, is what I just described a beautiful way to practice, but another way to say it, it may not get at all of our stuff. And I'm going to answer that question by saying, yes, we need a contemporary map of awakening. That's what I'll explore for the rest of the talk, and then we'll open things up for discussion. Is our goal still awakening? I would say yes. But do we need to have a more contemporary map of awakening in which we identify ways that we in the contemporary world have forms of, we might say, greed, hatred, and delusion not identified in the traditional map of awakening? And is there a way to integrate these beautiful traditional teachings and develop a contemporary map? And I'm going to suggest that that's a we're in that process right now. We're finding out what does contemporary awakening mean? And we're doing something very similar to the ways that uh, Buddhism, when it went to other cultures, merged with some of the, we might say, the wisdom of that particular culture and tradition. That when Buddhism went to China, it connected with uh, the Taoist tradition, the Confucian tradition, and we can't really understand Zen, which developed first in China, later in Japan, without understanding this mix. We can see that also happening in, in Tibet in many ways, as Buddhism mixed with more indigenous Tibetan cultures. And I think something similar is happening in our current time. Some people talk about this as a fourth turning of the wheel. It's said that the first turning of the wheel was by the Buddha. The second turning of the wheel was the Mahayana tradition, which brought in the notion of the Bodhisattva and other teachings. The third teaching of the wheel was the Vajrayana, especially Tibetan tradition. You find it in other cultures as well. Is there a need for a fourth turning of the wheel that would look a little bit different? And I'm going to, in a sense, point out two broad areas that, in my view, are being integrated at the present time with this traditional understanding of awakening. And those two broad areas are first more psychological understanding, material that comes from, especially from Western psychology, 
identifies ways that we get stuck, often in early childhood conditioning, that's not identified in a clear way in the, uh, the maps of the Buddha. And the other dimension is our social conditioning, the way we get conditioned by all sorts of social factors related to race and gender and sexual orientation and age and physical ability and appearance and so forth. And these forms, all these forms of conditioning are being identified at the present time. My sense is that we're slowly evolving a map of practice in which there's an integration of Buddhist practice with these two broad areas. One of the ways that we can see the need for such an integration is in the way that a number of teachers who seem to have been very developed in terms of traditional models of awakening basically mess up, (laughs) right? Sometimes in very harmful ways. And probably many of us know this, right? That we know that there have been teachers in different traditions who may have very deep meditative achievements and yet who may be um, sexually exploitive of their students. How many of you know of these kind of stories, right? They're out there, you know, or can manifest their social conditioning in other ways. You know, here's a passage from one of the great Zen teachers of the 20th century, uh, Yasutani Roshi, who was instrumental in the development of Zen in the West. Many of the great Zen teachers in the U.S. came from his lineage. This is from a book that he wrote um, of his teachings in 1943. It is therefore necessary to thoroughly defeat the propaganda and strategy of the Jews. So you'll find extreme anti-Semitism in this quotation. That is to say, we must clearly point out the fallacy of their evil ideas advocating freedom and equality. The general citizenry became fascinated with the ideas of freedom and equality as advocating by the scheming Jews. We must be aware of the existence of the demonic teachings and so forth. Shocking, isn't it? A person understood to be awake. And again, you can find many stories of seemingly awake teachers who have been exploitative in terms of sexuality or power or finances. We've, we've had relatively fewer of those in the insight meditation tradition. I think especially because Jack Kornfield early on thought that one, he could look around him and you know, these were ha- things were happening And he said, a lot of these happen when people are on their own and they don't get feedback. (laughs) And he said, we will establish the tradition of team teaching in which people get feedback. And I think that's been a contributor 
you know, to, to there being less of this, some, but, but less of it in the insight meditation tradition. You know, and, and so that's one of the reasons, you know, or, or, you know, finding that in Western psychological language, there's shadow material, right? There's material that's unworked out in people's psyches, and they can go to very deep levels of meditation without taking, you know, dealing with the psychological material. I've seen that. I've often taught our one-month retreat where we get very advanced practitioners, and there's still material there that I can see, sometimes related to trauma, sometimes related to psychological issues, and it doesn't necessarily get treated simply doing mindfulness because it's not necessarily on the map, right? And so what I'm suggesting, and I've explored this a lot in my own teaching and developing retreats and other teaching on the theme of transforming the judgmental mind. Maybe some of you, anyone done that with me? Yeah, some of you. And there we focus especially on identifying um, the sources of our most um, common self-judgments and judgments of others, which we can identify as coming from limiting beliefs, which often come from childhood. You know, a limiting belief like, I'm not okay, or something is weird with me, or, you know, anger is bad, or I'm not, you know, uh, my needs come, my needs come uh, second. Very, very common with women that I have found in, in working you know, very, very common. And so we can find, and that's starting to edge in, you can see how the social conditioning also is often not on the map. You know, and we can find ourselves, you know, again, some of the challenges with teachers are in the manifestations of, especially male teachers, not having worked through the conditioning to be a male, right? It's really, it's necessary to, how do we integrate that with our meditative practice and these deep teachings of awakening? That's what I'm pointing to. Same thing with issues of race and racism, right? And, you know, teachers like Ruth King and Rhonda McGee are starting to, some of you know their work, Mindful of Race by Ruth King. Rhonda McGee wrote The Inner Work of Racial Justice, really integrating this material. And I, I've, I've developed retreats called Buddhist Practice and Transforming Racism for People Racialized as White. And we've tried to integrate that. So I think there's something like a map. And, you know, I also find, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a, a Dharma teacher's men's group. We sometimes call ourselves Dharma dudes deconstructing patriarchy. <laughs> Maybe a little bit presumptuous, but, you know. Uh, but the point is that these things don't happen unless we attend, attend to them, right? That's really the point. And can we start to find um, that kind of integration? And we might even think that we can start connecting. A mod- we can start having a sense of here are forms of greed, hatred, and delusion that are socially conditioned. 
It's not just a matter of my personality, right? You know, one of my um, friends and a, a wonderful teacher named David Loy said it this way. Do greed, hatred, and delusion operate collectively? Does that mean that there are also collective greed, collective ill will, collective delusion? To ask the question this way is to realize the answer. Our present economic system institutionalizes greed. Our militarism institutionalizes ill will. And our corporate media institutionalizes delusion. The problem is not only that the three poisons operate collectively, but that they have taken over a life of their own. Today, today it is crucial for us to wake up and face the implications of these three institutional poisons. Many examples of institutionalized ill will spring to mind racism, a punitive judicial system, the general attitude towards undocumented immigrants. And then he goes on to talk about the plague of militarism. In the 20th century, as many as 170 million people have been killed in, in wars. And so that's my suggestion. I haven't here, you know, in this talk, I won't so much go into the specifics of this. It's really more of a vision, right, that I think is happening right now. A vision of integrating the best of, or not the best of, but this, the full teachings about awakening that are traditional. I think you can tell by my talking about this that I love those teachings, and they've been so central to me and many of the people I'm close to, and yet not fully adequate for getting at the conditioning of our times. Something else, something else is needed. <clears throat> so let me finish, maybe. Let me finish by giving, um, giving a few readings. You know, first of people who express several people who expressed this more, um, this, this vision of bringing attention to contemporary conditioning. And then I'll go back to the, I'll go back to the Buddha's sense of awakening. This is from the, the German teacher, I think actually Austrian, Thomas Hubel. We are now attuned to the fragility of our world our deep interconnectedness, our interdependence, they have become abundantly clear. All that, we need, all that we do in life affects and impacts one another. A collective crisis needs a collective response. In this time of heightened emotions, we can diligently apply practices which will deepen our sense of presence and grounding within ourselves and within the greater collective that we share. And then a second one, is from um, Thich Nhat Hanh. He says that the next Buddha may not be an individual, but may be a community. This is how Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese great beloved uh, Vietnamese teacher, expresses it. It is possible the next Buddha will not take the form of an individual. The next Buddha may take the form of a community, a community practicing understanding and loving kindness, practicing mindful living. And the practice can be carried out as a group, as a city, as a nation. I'm pointing to a little different model. 
And then from, this is from Angel, Angel Kyoto Williams. To do our work, to come into deep knowing of who we are, we have also to bring down systems of oppression. To do our work, to come into deep knowing of who we are, we have to also bring down systems of oppression and reclaim the human spirit. So she's bringing them together. And then the Buddha, going back to the Buddha to close. This mind, O monks, O practitioners, is radiant and brightly shining. It is free from visiting defilements. And then from his teachings on loving kindness, this is pointing to this awakened awareness connected with the heart. So with a boundless heart, should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will. And then lastly, awakening. This is the deathless, the liberation of the mind and heart through non-reactivity. I'll stop here and just give a moment to see what resonates with you. So this this great appreciation of the traditional sense of awakening and then asking, how do we express this in a contemporary way which gets at our conditioning and our stuff? And how do we bring them together? It's a work in progress. So thank you for your kind attention. And we have some time to talk together. And so we'll have someone with a microphone, I think, will come by. I see one person right here. I also have a voice that carries. Hi, I Hi. have a voice that carries. I'm curious of, of your sense of the reality given our current um, political and religious and just about every other divide in this country, what is the possibility for success for the Dharma dudes to deconstruct patriarchy (laughs) after 6,000 years of a patriarchal system? Well, we won't do it (laughs) (laughs) single-handedly. But... I think what you're pointing to is, I, I hold this, I, I've, it, was, it came out a little bit in, in Emily's description of me, but I've, I've worked with a variety of programs for people integrating inner work with social service and social change work. And I, I think even now, those who integrate that is what we most deeply need, you know, to really uh, 
you know, and it's really to point to um, ways of going beyond polarization and difference to, you know, to have ways of uh, recognizing one's own way of polarizing, one's own way of being self-righteous or dogmatic, and to, you know, really lead with um, compassion and empathy and skillful action. So personally, I think, I think it's the spirit of Angel Kyoto Williams' quote, that what is most deeply needed are people who can be engaged in the world and are coming, coming from the um, awakening process. And in particular, you know, something that I've, I've had a personal focus on a lot is skill in working with conflict and differences and coming to those areas not with self-righteousness, but with empathy. In other words, being able to understand others, which doesn't mean one can agree. I, I once helped organize a retreat, which we did at Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico, where they build nuclear weapons. And we would have uh, meals. They didn't permit us to, to um, use their bathrooms, but they did permit, permit us to, use their, uh, to go to their cafeterias. <laughs> And so we got a, a large RV, which had a bathroom. <clears throat> but we would, we would meet every day for lunch. It was a five-day retreat. And we would talk to the people building nuclear weapons. And in our group, some of the people met them with conflict. And some met, met, you know, met with more empathy. Like, and we could actually see that what they were looking for was a value that we could agree with, like security. We would just do it differently. We'd have a different strategy. And so I think that's crucial. And so I, I've thought, you know, I haven't actualized it yet, but I've thought of a, having a training program that would integrate deep practice for awakening with engagement in the world. How many would sign up for that? Okay. I see that. Okay. Yeah. I think something that is happening in different ways, but very much needed. So thank you. Mostly what my, my area was that when we have such deep divide, we can't come together in acceptance, women, minorities, uh, opportunities for people. That was what uh, I was hoping um, that you would uh, address. Do you think there's a, a real success possibility to deconstruct a patriarchal system that consciously has put women and girls particularly down. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I would. I mean, it's, um, again, people, the, the idea is the combination of inner work and outer response. Can't do that without inner work, right? And, um, and so hopefully... Many of us are engaged in something like this, but I, I would answer, uh, I'm not saying that there's a massive movement on all this, but this is the direction. So I'm, I'm more giving a visionary suggestion. Yeah, thank you. But I think it is, I think you're pointing to, it is key to responding to the needs of our times. Yeah. Um, so I, I have oh, there a, you are. Hi. Okay. Um, 
I guess it's more of a thought than a question, but yeah. um, it's so powerful to be here together with the Sangha again. Yeah. I almost feel like I'm going to cry. Just <laughs> It's so important. And I think the example that you just gave of, of being at Los Alamos and the impact you were able to have was because you were there yeah. physically with those people. And um, I guess it's just... Um, a plea that I have to Spirit Rock to try to do this more because it's so necessary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, community is so crucial. Like Thich Nhat Hanh said, the community may be the next Buddha, right? And, with, and this level of community, I do a lot of work with small groups, which is another major factor, you know, having groups of four or eight or ten where people are deeply involved in some of the training programs that we did connecting inner work and social service and social change were in small groups. It was modeled after the uh, um, liberation theology movement in in South America, Central America and and Asia to some extent. Other questions, comments? Yeah. And, and um, very much um, welcomed are what you might think are half-baked questions. Don't have to be fully baked. <laughs> There's one in the middle here. I guess my question was more about uh, when you're dealing with something personally, whether it's the environment or the politics or family or business or whatever it is, and it's 3 o'clock in the morning and you can't sleep, and uh, you're working on mindfulness as a way to get through that, Yeah. and it's not enough. Like, the only thing, like, maybe bench pressing 500 pounds might be enough, or <laughs> running a marathon might be enough, or, like, it's just too, it's too much. There's, there's too much energy, and yeah. it seemed like you referred to that at one point, and I was curious what other strategies, when it's... When yeah, it's too intense for meditation. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a really crucial question. Um, there, um, I like to, in my meditation guidance, I like to work with a scale of 1 to 10 in terms of level of intensity of what's happening. And clarify, you know, or have one clarify, when is... Uh, in what range is the experience workable? And I would say when it's a 9 or a 10, it's in the overwhelm zone. You know, there's an interesting learning theory which says there's the comfort zone, there's the discomfort zone, and there's the overwhelm zone. Uh, Guess where we learn the most? Hmm? In the discomfort zone. Sorry to break it to you. (laughs) But that's where we learn the most. And so, uh, you know, number one, clarify the level of intensity, whether it's workable or not. If it's a 9 or a 10 and not workable, then we want to have several strategies that can help one to come back to balance. Uh, and if it's a 9 or a 10, 
mindfulness is not actually appropriate. And I think uh, teachers of mindfulness have learned a lot in the last 10 years, for example, about trauma, right? And I I once went through uh, the somatic experiencing three-year training, and we had people in our group who said they had had experienced a fair amount of trauma, and they were given uh, guidance by teachers when they were in the middle of trauma, just stay with it. Be mindful, not not good guidance based on not knowing about trauma. And so, you know, there might be traumatic activation of an overwhelming kind. One wants to have a strategy to get out of it. Could be done, you know, if you wake up at three in the morning and let's say one is really being very heavily self-judgmental, okay, uh, based on something that happened yesterday. It's too much for mindfulness what you could do might be to do loving-kindness practice. There's some forms of meditation, like loving-kindness, which are based on concentration and can actually take you away from what's happening. When the, when the um, loving-kindness is well-developed, it can actually, when there's a 9 or a 10, it can move away from that. But it might be if it's, you know, something happens during the day, it could be take a walk, do something physical, um, talk with someone, have a repertoire. What do you do when it's a nine or a 10? And mindfulness may not be appropriate. You know, so that's, that's crucial. Yeah. Does that get at it? That was great, thanks. Yeah, thank you. You know, and then, you know, and then the, uh, you know, the, uh, in the moment, that's what one might, one might do. But what's coming up may be, let's say, I'm really self-judgmental at three in the morning. I might come back and over time do work on the roots of that self-judgment, which might go back to childhood, right? And that would bring in, like I was saying, more of that psychological material, which, again, in the, the work I do with the judgmental mind, it's pretty well integrated. That, you know, so that, that we could see an example of what I'm talking about. You know, and, you know, I've, I've met very senior meditators who've done tons of meditation, and they still have issues of not liking themselves, right? Because they, they, haven't, they haven't gone there. They haven't done that, that work. Okay, well, do we, should we go to the uh, online? Okay, hello, Victoria. Hello. Greetings, yeah. Um. I, one day, I hope I'll see you. Oh, can you hear me? I can, yeah. Oh, that sounds very echoey. Um, this is, this is a, what really hit me tonight um, was in this idea of remembering. And I thought of the famous Wordsworth poem um, of the intimations of um, early childhood, where, where Wordsworth says, the child is father of the man. Right. And this sense um, that's in in a lot of traditions that that well, I mean, it's even like the Garden of Eden idea, I suppose, in a way. But the idea that that our whole life journey is to remember where we started, that 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 our the the true wisdom um, was was you know before we came into being as the people we are now. So I I don't know. I just found that so profound. I wanted to. Um, 
I wanted to, I don't know, ask you to what how you connect that with all the no, different traditions that we've studied. Yeah, no, it's a very it's a very powerful um, way of seeing awakening. You know, like in that quote I read from the Tibetan tradition, it said that we somehow lose sense of our deeper nature. You know, and we know almost we could we could see how maybe if we've been around young children, we can see how fairly quickly they lose something, right? They lose some sense of connection to something very deep. They develop a sense of self. It's necessary, but there can be a sense of forgetting, of moving away from that. And, and so remembering is a beautiful way of seeing. We, we, we don't produce awakening we rather touch that which is always there. That's the teaching, right? Mm -hmm. and, and there's a beautiful resonance with other traditions, like you say, from the poetry of Wordsworth. But I was also thinking of uh, many other spiritual traditions. I was thinking of, uh, you know, the, the roots of Western philosophy in Plato. What we do is we remember, we remember our deeper nature. And it goes, I think, along with uh, shamanism, and indigenous traditions, the notion of remembering, coming back to be fully ourselves. You know, and in shamanism, often the prospective shaman falls apart and then comes together and remembers one's original unity. And so, um, yeah, but, but the idea is that, uh, that our deeper nature is... Um, not something we produce. It's something we touch again, we remember. And then what I'm suggesting is that we, uh, to, you know, as I mentioned, we can touch this awakened awareness fairly easily. It's actually not so hard. But to have it be there in our lives more and more of the time, we have to see what gets in the way. And that's really mm -hmm. what I'm pointing to that what gets in the way has been identified in traditional teachings as reactivity, as greed, hatred, and delusion. And what gets in the way can be seen also in some of what we may have learned in our families of origin. You know, even if they were very loving, there's, we all come with what I call limiting beliefs. And also in our social conditioning even if, you know, the, the research on implicit bias shows that if we have biases from social conditioning and they conflict with what we believe, you know, as whatever, good progressives or whatever, guess what wins out in practice? The conditioning, it, you know, that's what, that's what the research shows. So, we have to, we, have to, we touch awakening, we keep on touching it, and we, we keep on cleaning up what gets in the way. That's, that's our life. That's, that's, that's a life of awakening, right? Um, and what I'm, again, what I'm suggesting is it's helpful to identify some further dimensions of cleaning up so that we don't engage in spiritual bypassing. 
That's really what I most say. And it's something, maybe I'll finish with this. It's something that we're doing collectively. That's why I like the Thich Nhat Hanh quotation. We're really doing this collectively. We need all of us to do our own work and share what we have found useful. This isn't going to come from a Buddha. That's, again, why I think Thich Nhat Hanh is saying it's a community practice, you know, and we, we, we compare and we share and we, how, do we, how do we get through some of our difficult stuff from the past? How do we get through trauma? How do we transform that? How do we transform um, patriarchal conditioning, which is in everyone? You know? All the conditioning is in everyone. That's what we find. And we need to uh, find ways to work with it, with compassion and, and all of those beautiful qualities of awakening, with mindfulness, with um, concentration, with inquiry, continual inquiry, with resolve and energy, with joy and bliss, and with equanimity and tranquility. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so, thank you so much. I would. We're at we're at our closing time. I would love to let's let's finish just with uh, thirty seconds or a minute right now. Let's bring to mind what may have been helpful for you from the talk, or maybe something that just occurred in your own awareness, not even necessarily related to it. What was helpful from the evening? And how to take it further? How do you keep this going for yourself? Closing with the dedication of merit, may the benefits of our evening be offered to ourselves, to those in our own circles, and then beyond our own circles. May the benefits of the evening be offered to all beings, knowing that we are part of all beings. And yay to being here together again. Yay. yay, yay. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.